I'm Rena Nainen, and this is Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting podcast. It's a podcast to help parents better understand their kids. Dr. Lisa Demore, a psychologist with three decades of experience and the author of three New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. Both of us are moms ourselves, and we're eager to hear from you. So send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And join our community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Ask Lisa Podcast. Episode 115, How Do I Parent a Young Adult and Deal with My Own Parents? With special guest, Dr. Lawrence Steinberg. One thing I love about this podcast, Lisa, is we talk about things that don't normally come up just casually in parenting. And one of these topics, crucially, hugely important, is when you become an, a parent of an adult, what is acceptable and what is not? The relationship changes, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely does. And it's a huge part of being a member of a family, is working across the generations, both raising adult children and then being an adult, interacting with the parents that you have as they get to know your own kids. It's complicated, as they say. And we've got the perfect guest, as always. Dr. Lawrence Steinberg is a leading psychologist who's devoted his 45-year career to researching parent-child relationships. He's a professor of psychology at Temple University. He's authored many books, and his work has appeared in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. We're thrilled to have him and to celebrate the publication of his new book, You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Larry, we are so glad to have you here. And I have had um, the opportunity to read this book before publication. And Rena knows how picky I am. I don't, I don't often praise books um, in a full-throated way, but this book is perfect. And I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, it's really, it was incredibly informative for me to read. The tone is spot on. And you take up so many questions that adults struggle with with either raising their own adult children or dealing with their own parents. Right, thank you. I'm really glad to hear that, Lisa. Um, it, um, it, was, it was really interesting to write, partly because there aren't resources out there for um, parents with adult children, and because as, as I worked on the book, um, and especially, I'll just tell a little anecdote here, when I was recording the audiobook for it several weeks ago, I was working with two um, wonderful young people in their 20s. One, the producer of the audio working from New York was in her late 20s, and the sound engineer in California where I was recording the book was in his mid-20s. And this was their first exposure to the material, hearing me narrate it. And after the first day, the young producer came up to me and she said, I've got to get a copy of this book for my parents because they don't understand me. And separately and independently of that, two days later, during a break, the sound engineer came up to me and he said, my parents have to read this book because this is what life is like and they don't get it. And so I'm, I'm happy to hear that this book will be useful both to parents and to their kids because I think that they're all in this new situation. There are no rules there are very few guideposts. No one really knows what to do because, as I explained, there are so many things that are new now about the lives of adult children. And 
we've talked a lot in the popular media about young people and the problems they have making the transition into adulthood. And Lisa, you have talked a lot about that in your writing. But it seems to me that there are lots of reverberations for their parents. And that's something that has been ignored. I think that's right. And we um, we put a call out to our listeners, got phenomenal questions. And what was really fun is we just mentioned the title of your book and the questions we got go right down the center of exactly what you're talking and thinking about. And what I'll say before we get to these questions, which we'll do here just in a moment, as I was reading your book, what it reminded me of was a moment I had in my own training where I had a really good supervisor who said, when you are doing your job right, you are equidistant between parents and their teenagers. You're standing in the middle, seeing it from both sides and trying to help them come together. And I will say that's what I felt was so beautiful about your book. You know, there's no good guys or bad guys. You're not on anyone's team. You are equidistant between adults and their adult children trying to help them come together. Right. And rather than give a lot of specific advice that said, this is the way you have to handle this. What I've tried to do is to raise issues and say, here's how to think about it. Yep. And and, and I try to say, here's how to think about it in a way that's going to be compassionate to both the young person and to their parents. Because I think that 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 both sides, I don't mean to work, use the word sides, but both generations um, feel misunderstood and can use some help in how to navigate this new situation that they weren't expecting. I mean, that's a big part of what's going on, I think, now, um, that neither parents nor their young adult children were expecting to find themselves in this situation. Thank goodness for you. I mean, I really mean that in terms of giving them some guidance. All right, so here, let's get to our questions. They're amazing. So this is a, a wonderful sort of big, broad one. How do I stay close to my children as they move towards independence? Well, <laughs> that's what the book is about. I mean, that's <laughs> why we called it How to Grow Together. Um, I, you know, I think that there are a couple things that parents need to understand. The first is that there's another drive toward autonomy um, that starts to come out, I think, in the late 20s and maybe around age 30. Um, You know, there's one famous one during the toddler years, and there's a second famous one that, Lisa, you and I know well, which is during the early adolescent years. But I think there's another one that happens during the late 20s. And I think that this inclination toward wanting to be more independent stems from the young adult's desire to show their parents, the world, and themselves that they can handle the demands and challenges of adulthood without relying on their parents all the time. And so I, I think that the way that parents stay close during this time period is to understand and respect that, and that when you feel your young adult challenging you in ways that may be reminiscent of what they did as teenagers, um, di- you know, dis- disregarding your opinion or pushing back against your opinion, you just have to tell yourself, this isn't about me. This is about this stage of development that my grown child is going through right now. And I think that the more you do that, um, the less the autonomy will be a challenge for your child. And that will allow you to stay close and, and to grow closer. The same way, I just did one thought here is that, 
You know, parents struggle with this kind of issue when their kids are young teenagers. But I've had, uh, and I'd be interested, Lisa, if this is your experience too, I've had many parents come to me when their kids were in the later high school years and said it was like a switch flipped when they became juniors Mm. in high school. I mean, we stopped fighting about things. Um, And I think that that's because the autonomy issues were kind of worked out by then. I agree. I mean, when I think about separation individuation, like I really located around age 13 is when it hits its height. And it does soften and it does ease and parents become more bearable and even likable to older teenagers only after the teen has been able to establish themselves as um, a freestanding actor. And I think often Early high school is when kids get to do that. They get into clubs, they get into sports, they sort of articulate an identity that feels their own, and then they can be close with their folks again. So I think it's so fun to watch the ebb and flow. And I will say, the piece you said about it not being personal, I feel like that's how we as psychologists can be most useful to families, is to say, listen, you're operating in patterns we see all the time. This is not something that's just going down between you and your kid. We can articulate the patterns. And the heat that takes out of the relationship really does let things grow. Right. And to to help them understand that this process of negotiating new understandings of independence and autonomy in the family, it's a bi-directional process. It's it's not just the, the, the younger generation striving to pull away and be distant from the older one. It's the older generation trying to figure out how to establish a new equilibrium with mm. a new understanding of what the ground rules are going to be. I've never heard it put that way. That, that is beautiful. beautiful. And and it gives me a little hope hearing junior year because when you're in the thick of it and they're going bonkers between like 11 and 16 or 15 or what, what is it, Lisa? It's it's between there sometime. It's hard. It's hard for us parents. But I want to fast forward yep. a little bit because I'm curious. We've done a lot on this podcast, Larry, about the transition of having your child ready for college. What's your advice for creating that appropriate transition from home to college? What should parents keep in mind? Well, they have to keep in mind that this is, um, it, it, can, it can be bumpy for everybody. It can be bumpy for um, the, the teenager who's about to go off to college. It can be bumpy for the parents. And I think in my experience, not just as a parent, but talking to parents, which is what I do a lot of, um, is that... A lot of families find that they that they start arguing more just before the child is ready to leave the college, and I think that this is partly a way of preparing for the separation. It makes it easier um, makes it easier to wave goodbye to your kid when this is coming after a period of not getting along, and it makes it easier to say goodbye to your parents when you feel like I can't wait to be in some new mm. place. But then I think right after um, there's the homesickness. There's the feelings of the empty nest, even if it's not totally empty, if you have more than one child. Um, And so I think there may be some bumpiness um, there going on. And I think you need to understand, and this is true always, but I think during transitional times, it's especially true, um, that your child continues to need you. Your child continues to need your love and support, um, even if the situation has changed. Now, um, one thing that I've suggested to parents when their kids are about to go off to college is that when problems arise, what you want to do, rather than try to solve them for your young adult child, um, 
is to help them figure out how to use the resources on their campus to solve those problems. Because those of us who teach on college campuses know those resources are there. I mean, they're free. They may be hard to find within the bureaucracy, um, but I know my university, Temple University, does what it can to make these services known to students and to make it easier for students to find them on their own. So I think, you know, that when... You know, when, when your child is having a difficult transitional time, I think the kind of questioning you should engage in is, um, have you talked to your resident advisor, you know, about this? Have you gone to student services about this? Have you talked to your professor advisor about this too? Because rather than me as your dad solving this for you, I think there are people there that can be better helps than, than I can be. I love both the um, approach, which I agree with completely, and also the language. I think that so often we can know as psychologists what we think people should do, but giving them the words like you just did to put it into practice, I think, um, can help them actually make it happen. Yeah. I found myself doing that a lot in the new book Yeah, where I would say, say something like this. And so trying to give parents a template that they can work from, they don't have to use those exact words, but I want to give them the sentiment that I, that I hope they convey. No, it comes across beautifully. Larry, I would imagine it's so hard as a parent when you have adult children and they're dating someone or uh, they're doing something that you can see. This is a horrible, horrible choice. When should you bite your tongue? And when is it time to intervene? Because I think I would be that parent that's just picking up the phone saying, oh, no, 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 this is going to be so bad and seeing what they do go the opposite way, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in, in our field, we sometimes refer to that as the Romeo and Juliet effect. <laughs> the, you know, the, the more the parents protest, the more the lovers um, want to be together. Um, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that um, in, in the real world. I have a couple of thoughts on this. Um, the first is to ask yourself as a parent, what is it about this person that bugs you? Um, because sometimes it's a matter of taste. And there's no reason your child has to have the same tastes in people that you do. I, I would guess that since you've done a good job as a parent all along, your child does share some of your tastes. And if your child is now choosing somebody that you don't particularly care for, that's probably because you haven't seen the good things in this person that your child sees. So I think you need to step back, maybe even have a discussion with your partner um, or with your friends about this person, um, I wouldn't go to your child first and say, I don't like this person. you got to get out of this relationship. Um, so that's one thing. So, so sort of check your own emotional baggage here and figure out what is it about this person that annoys you, bugs you, worries you. Um, now, if there are things that are genuinely dangerous, let's say you know that their relationship is characterized by interpersonal violence, for example, or that the, the potential mate has untreated substance abuse or mental health problems that really need to be treated before they can be a suitable spouse. You, you know, I, I think there are sometimes legitimate reasons to be concerned, but often it is really a matter of taste. The other thing you know, that I want to say is that I think the age of your young adult child depends a lot. What we now know from looking at research on how old people are when they meet their future spouse, 
They're not meeting them. They're certainly not meeting them in high school. They're not even meeting them in college um, anymore. I mean, the average age, when in surveys, and these are data from Facebook, in, in, in these data, it shows that most people say that they meet the person, or they met the person they eventually married when they were in their late 20s or around the age of 30. So if your child is dating somebody and they're 24, 25 years old, I think you probably shouldn't say anything. Because I think the chances that they're going to end up together are probably pretty small. At least that's what the statistics say. Now, on the other hand, if your child is um, in their early 30s, there's a good chance that this could be the person. In which case, um, you need to be a little more worried because your child may be looking at the clock and feel like this is my last chance to find the perfect mate um, and may make some bad choices because they're kind of getting a little bit desperate. And so there, then, I think it's the time to ask yourself, what is it about this person that I I object to and see whether it's somebody that's dangerous or somebody that's just a matter of taste. You can can learn to love them, uh, you know, and you might not love them, you know, from day one. If it is dangerous, like if, if you really do have some pretty serious concerns, what do you think parents should do? I think they should talk to their child about them. I, th- I think they should say, um, you know, I know that you love this person a lot, and I'm happy for that, but I have some concerns that I want to talk to you about. And here's what they are, and let's talk about how you might address these with your partner before the two of you move ahead in this relationship. I mean, some of them can be remedied, right? I mean, the person has a drinking problem. Well, that can be treated. So I think you want to sort of look at what the specific, and I think the more specific you can be, the better the conversation is going to be, rather than just saying, eh, I just don't like this person. Yeah, I love that. Larry, we're going to pause and take a quick break. You're listening to Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. I got the most amazing pair of boot-cut black work pants that have been a game changer, all thanks to my stylist at Stitch Fix. The stylists understand your style, your size, your budget, and they do all the shopping for you. It took a couple of tries for the stylist and I to really see eye to eye, and once they did, it's such a game changer. I asked for a pair of black pants that make my legs look good, and also would look good with a blouse or a nice top. They really nailed it. And then they found another cardigan for me that really works. I also love that they show you different styles of how you can put these outfits together. I love that it feels that she can read my mind now and we've got a rhythm to where all I do is say I need this type of wardrobe piece and she sends it to me and it fits and it works. Styles that make you feel as good as you look. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash asklisa. That's stitchfix.com slash asklisa. Stitchfix.com slash asklisa. I love doing laundry now because of EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze are these eco sheets that look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless, so you don't have that drippy goo from plastic jugs. EarthBreeze is really tough on stains, even odors. And if you've got teens, you know about those odors. Dermatologists tested, hypoallergenic, and also free of bleach, dyes, and parabens. Fragrance-free option is also there for anyone who wants it. So what EarthBreeze did was they got rid of the unnecessary chemicals for a formula that's kind to sensitive skin of all ages, and that includes babies. 
And I love that I just order online and the shipment comes right to my door when I need it. So right now, our listeners at Ask Lisa can receive 40% off of Earth Breeze. That's right, 40% off just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash asklisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and get your 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. Did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes? Luckily, one company is changing this standard for good. Bullen Branch Sheets, which you know I love, uses the rarest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. I have had my Bullen Branch Sheets for a while now, and I love them. They feel like butter. In fact, I am so used to them now that when I travel, as I often do for work, I take my Bolin Branch pillowcase with me and I put it on the pillow in the hotel room so I can enjoy that softness, at least on my face, even when I'm not sleeping in my own bed. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bolin Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code ASKLISA at BolinBranch.com. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code ASKLISA. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. We're joined by special guest and author, Dr. Lauren Steinberg. Larry, I want to ask you about financially supporting your adult child. Let's say they want to start a company, get a house. When is it appropriate and okay and healthy to help them out? And when is it sort of questionable? Well, let's start by doing a reality check here. Um, and that's that uh, it is very expensive to be a young adult these days, much more than it was um, for their parents' generation. And that's largely because of the widening gap between housing costs and salaries. So housing costs have gone up about five times faster than salaries have gone up. And so I just want to make sure that parents understand that if their grown child comes to them asking for financial help, um, it's very common. It doesn't mean that your child is unsuccessful or some sort of an anomaly. So the first is um, it's not a cause for concern in and of itself. Um, the second point is that you have to make sure as the parent that your finances can can manage helping your child. Right? I mean, I, I think that um, the, the advice that I've gotten from people that work with adults in this age range is don't do something that's going to threaten your retirement savings or threaten your life or threaten your health in some way. Um, so let's assume, though, that you can help. And now the question is, how do you how do you have the conversation about how much help and what the understanding is and what the help is for? Um well, I think there, there are a couple of ground rules to, that you need to follow. Um, the first is that when you help your child to do something, like start a business, or when you're subsidizing rent in an apartment, or you're helping them with a down payment on a home, you have to trust that your child is going to use the money for what they've said the money is going to be used for. Um, I mean, if you can't, if you don't have a sense of trust in your child, you've got bigger problems than worrying about how to handle this financial transaction. Um, the, the second, so you want to understand, have an understanding with your child explicit about what the money is for. 
You want to have an understanding about how long the financial assistance is going to last. Um, and now the answers to these questions are going to vary from family to family, depending upon what the money is for and how much money is on the table. Um, the third thing is to is you have to say to your child something like, I'm trusting that you will tell me when you no longer need this much assistance um, or any assistance at all. Only you know that. Um, and then I think there's the big question, which I spend a fair amount of time on because it is something that parents ask me a lot, which is, what is your right to monitor and make sure that your child is spending the money wisely and in a way that is consistent with what it's intended to be spent on. I tell a story in the book about parents that discover that a couple who they're assisting financially is going on a big vacation, you know, and the parents look at each other and say, I thought they were broke. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why they came to us to ask for help. Now, you know, I, I think you, I think at those moments you can say something like, um, I just want to check in and make sure that you still need the help we've been giving you because um, sometimes it looks like you don't really need it, um, but let's talk about it. I love that. Let's turn the lens the other way and think about what it means to be someone who's raising kids, dealing with your own parents and their grandparenting role. So we got some fantastic questions, and I'm going. there's two I'm going to say together. One is, what do you do with grandparents who don't have good boundaries or respect, or grandparents who disagree with the way you're raising your child? Well, boy, we could talk for a few hours about this. Um, I think that, you know, you, you certainly want your parents, your child's grandparents, to have a good relationship with their grandchild. And I think we have a lot of good research showing that that's beneficial to the grandchild and it's beneficial to the parents and it's beneficial to the grandparents. So you don't want to push them away or shut them out. So I think you have to keep that in mind and then say, how can we have an honest conversation about the boundaries and about um, a way that we can keep you in our life and in our child's life um, without feeling that you're in it too much? Um, and I, I think a lot of grandparents will understand that. I think, as in most of these kinds of conversations, the more specific you can be, um, the better. Like, it, we just don't have time to have a phone call every single day. Can we sort of limit it to every other day or, you know, twice a week or whatever? Um, we don't want you to be sending our grandchild presents all the time. It's not good for our grandchild. And some of the things you send are not things we especially want our grandchild to have. So some examples I give in the book are, you know, a lot of parents don't want their children to have toy guns. The grandparents may not realize that. A lot of parents don't want their children to be on screens a lot. Grandparents may not realize that. And so you can say, just check with us before you send something. We don't want to have to have your grandchild open up your gift and then us say you can't have that. Um, let's get to the tricky question of, of what do you do if they complain about the way that you're parenting. Um, I, I, let me talk first to the grandparents here, if, if that's okay. Uh, you know, I think that... Um, 
this is one of those situations where if you're if your kids are not doing something that's dangerous or that's going to really cause some irreparable harm, just keep it to yourself. I mean, if if you can't stand to watch it, just get out of the come out of the room, <laughs> hold your nose, avert your eyes, whatever. I mean, the the one thing that we know is that parenting advice is faddish, just like you know, styles and shoes or furnishings or whatever. Today's young people tend to parent their children along a very rigid schedule, rigid sleep schedule, rigid feeding schedule. Their parents, my generation of parents, were just the opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, we fed our kids when they were hungry and we didn't try to get them to eat when they didn't seem hungry. We put them down when they looked tired and we didn't wake them up until they wanted to get up. It's the complete opposite today. And the gurus, the parenting gurus out there now, advise that kind of strict, regulated, scheduled parenting. Um, and they say it's sort of a breakthrough. Well, if you go back and you look at the history of parenting, it's not a breakthrough. That's what parenting advisors were saying in the 1930s and 1940s. And until Dr. Smock wrote Baby and Child Care, that was the way that parents were told to parent. It was called scientific parenting. And I would call it, in today's jargon, data-driven parenting. Right? You, you may know. You may, some of your listeners may do this. You have your iPhone. You record every ounce of, of food your child takes in the morning. You record every nap down to the actual minute. You look and say, oh, they're only supposed to have this many minutes of sleep per day, so I better wake them up from the nap right now. This, this right? is a little too close to home. I, I, was, no, well, <laughs> I was the mom who could measure what how much breast milk I was putting out, you know, on an app. This is a little yes. too close to home, Larry. Yes, exa exactly. But I, I joke in the book that, you know, the first, the opening of Spock's book is trust yourself. Mm -hmm. If you were writing that book today, the opening would be trust the data. And, the, and everything is data-driven and parenting has become data-driven as well. So I think from the child's point of view, try to understand that your parents were parents, were, were, were parenting you at a time when parenting advice was very different than the advice that you're getting now. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that it probably doesn't really matter all that much, whether you um, are parenting on a data-driven schedule or whether you're being more chill about it. Your kid's going to turn out fine, probably. Um, so I think you can find ways of saying to your parents, um, that's a helpful suggestion. Thanks for suggesting that. Um, and then either do it or don't do it, depending upon how <laughs> you really think it is. Um, but I would try to avoid getting into tussles about it. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the big game changers for me when I, I had my kids was my parents and my in-laws were hugely helpful. I was covering Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. I was on a different plane every other day. And having them come and help with the childcare was massively important and helpful because I was able to focus on my job. But this letter, this question we got from a listener was, what do I do if my parents aren't showing up the way I had hoped for them to be the kind of grandparent that I wanted? I think you can invite them to show up more. Um, maybe they don't realize. I mean, they, they may be feeling like they're worried about being intrusive. Um, and I think if you say to them, um, you know, it is so helpful when you're here when you're babysitting, when you're helping out in an emergency. I love it when you do that. Um, and so don't be shy about 
offering to do that. And don't, um, don't, don't be put off if I ask you to help because it is so hard being a new parent. And I'm really hoping that you can lend a hand now and then. Communication uh, is what you're saying is so important. Yeah, but also, you know, again, understanding. There may be reasons, right? You may, your parents may be elderly. And let me tell you, having been, a, I am a grandfather, but my grandson is now not an infant anymore. It's hard work. Mm-hmm. And it's hard work when you're in your 60s to be bending over and lifting yeah. up, the, you know, these 12 pounds of joy over and over again. Your back isn't the back that you had when you were 30 years old. And maybe you are you need to appreciate that chasing a, a baby who's now starting to crawl um, around a room is a taxing thing for somebody who is not in the shape that you're in to do. But Larry, how do you as a parent deal with the disappointment? Because you you know they were so excited, you got pregnant, they couldn't wait, and then they're just not, and you know, and some, some parents know, okay, they're not going to be the parent that's going to help me out. Well, you know, we all have to live through life being sometimes disappointed in the people that we love because they're not behaving exactly as we had expected or hoped. I don't think that there's a solution to it other than a conversation to see if there are impediments that are interfering with their being able to help that you can that you can do something about. Um, and it may be just that they're worried about being intrusive and are trying to give you some space. And um, maybe you can, if you find that out, you can, you know, you can disabuse them of that, of, of that assumption. Okay, Larry, we got a very interesting one on grandparents that um, I think seems like a really challenging question. So I'm, I'm very eager to hear what you have to say. What do I do with grandparents of teens who have out there beliefs like QAnon? Uh, that is hard. Um, I think that you have to have a conversation with your teenager um, about the fact that there are people who have different beliefs about things in the world. Some of them might strike you as being wacky. Um, Some of them might strike you as being offensive. Um, I think if your teenager is the kind of person that can do what I'm about to suggest, that you can have your teenager say, you know, Grandma and Grandpa, when I hear you say things like that, it really upsets me. And I just, uh, you know, you, you, I respect your right to have those opinions and to have those beliefs, but I really wish you wouldn't express them in front of me because it really just hurts me and, and offends me. Um, and if they say it in a polite way, I, I think a lot of grandparents would probably respect that. Um, I don't think the thing to do when your grandparents hold extreme rigid beliefs is to try to argue with them Mm. about it because I don't think that's going to be productive. What you can do if you want to further the conversation about it is to say, hmm, I don't think of it that way. Can we talk? Tell me more about why you believe what you believe. But I don't think you want it to escalate into an argument. You know, uh, people say very often that two things that you maybe shouldn't talk about in families all the time were politics and religion. And that that's what I think a lot of these views are probably about. And um, 
you, you know, I think as a parent, you have to have a separate conversation with your teenager um, mm-hmm. about how they're feeling about what their grandparents are, are saying and how best to handle that situation. I think that makes so much sense. And it really feels like it takes us back to the advice you gave before, which is such profound advice, which is sometimes we feel disappointed in people we love, right? And that we can have, in fact, we invariably have ambivalence in relationships. There's stuff we really like about people and side by side with that, there can be things that we have a really hard time with. And that's the nature of family life. And Lisa, as you've said so eloquently in your new book, um, you know, we have unpleasant feelings. That's part of human nature. And you need to just accept the fact that that's going to be a part of your experience as a full human being. It, it, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person for having feelings of anger or annoyance or disappointment or whatever, but you need to understand those feelings and accept them. That's okay. Mm. That, that, you know, that's part of being alive. Larry, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, you've got 45 years of experience on adult-child relationships. Um, what do you hope people walk away with from this book? Well, I hope they walk away with, um, first of all, a better understanding of how the experience of their adult child today differs from their experience um, when they were that age. Because I think that um, a lot of parents, understandably, judge their own child's trajectory into and through adulthood against the timetable that they followed, not realizing that the circumstances of growing up today are very, very different. Um, And so I think that if I can help parents develop more realistic and reasonable expectations, um, that will help their child um, and that will help themselves um, because they won't be as anxious or as annoyed or as worried um, as as they, um, you know, as they might be. So, you know, I've, I've tried to provide some guideposts and, and some general advice for a new situation that neither the parents nor their adult children ever expected to find themselves in. Um, I don't believe that anybody's book, including mine, is the final word on a subject, but I hope that it gets the conversation going and it helps parents think about this phase in their family's life um, in, an, in a new way and in a way that's going to be beneficial to both generations. Wonderful. Well, congratulations on your publication day. I am so delighted that this book now exists in the world. It is a desperately needed contribution and a beautiful one. Thank you. Thank you so much. And the book is called You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times by Dr. Lauren Steinberg. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Lisa, what do you have for us for Parenting to Go? Well, what I love so much about Larry's new book is that it gives so much guidance that starts with the assumption that you first want to try to see it from the other person's perspective. And, you know, what he was saying in that wrap-up, just that, you know, things have really changed. And it's different for adult children than it was when we were coming into adulthood ourselves. And even in his thinking about grandparents, you know, the way he was thinking about those questions was, well, I wonder what's going on for the grandparent in that, you know, interaction. And I think it's just such sound advice whenever we come up against a conflict to first think, Can I imagine where that other person is coming from? Can I walk around in their shoes a little bit? And that almost always opens a path for finding a way through a conflict. 
empathy can be an amazing opportunity in a toolbox for an adult-child relationship like this. Absolutely. And next week, we're going to talk about whether you should kick your child off of TikTok. We'll have more on that next week. I'll see you next week, Lisa. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well-being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.